Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode... What we have done is we found a way to deliver this instead of the large gas cylinders, which they're delivering in the hospital, we're delivering it in a liquid. A local company has had incredible results come back for their COVID-19 therapy, and they are now ready to enter the next round of trials. They do expect the city to manage it through finances responsibly, um, and that's the, that's the message that I'm getting that I'm hearing. One Vancouver City Councillor is suggesting steps to boost city revenues, but where does she want that money to come from? And the Vancouver Whitecaps have a new partnership with the Vancouver Aquarium in the hopes of raising money to help with the care of animals. We're a civic institution and we have a number of tools at our disposal that can that can deliver help like this. So if we can, we must. That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. You know, we're hearing about countries and some provinces that are planning on getting things moving again. Ontario is going to get their plan today. We know New Zealand is moving forward. So we're all looking forward to that, right? Where we can have some semblance of normal happening. Well, taking a look at uh, China right now, they're trying to do that. It's where this whole global pandemic originated. And they are now reporting in the area of Wuhan that there are zero hospitalizations for COVID-19. Now, that is months after some of the most severe lockdown measures that we have seen anywhere. To talk more about this, we're joined now by Nathan Vanderclip, who's the Globe and Mail Beijing correspondent, to find out how things are going there. Good morning, Nathan. Good morning. So how are things going as they're trying to get things reopening? I know you're in Beijing. What's it been like there? Yeah, it's the strange kind of normal in Beijing where there's traffic back on the streets. There has been for quite some time, actually. Uh, a little bit uh, less less busy on sort of public transit as people are trying to stay away from public transit still and opting to be in cars where they can. Uh, most offices are open. Uh, many restaurants are now open. Most shops and other things are open. Um, but everywhere you go, there are restrictions, and you can't get into a shopping mall or many office buildings without going through temperature checks. Sometimes those are simple little infrared thermometers that uh, they apply to a wrist or a forehead. In other cases, they're quite sophisticated uh, thermal cameras that are aimed at you, the sort of things you might see uh, in, a, um, uh, in an airport or right. perhaps even a military establishment. And, uh, and then it goes from there. I mean, there's apps that check your, your, your status on whether you're allowed to travel outside of your home or not. Uh, people are taking down your, your identification numbers and your phone numbers and, and this sort of thing. And many communities, many residential areas of Beijing are just completely shut off to anyone but residents. And what about the factories? What's it been like trying to get them up and running again? They've been running for a while. Um, so at first there were, it would be, you know, they had very strict requirements in terms of getting those back up and running uh, in terms of they, you know, workers needed a quarantine before they could go back in. This is at the very outset. And the factories needed to have plans in place that included 
details on how they would sort of keep people away from each other, and they had to have certain stockpiles in place of uh, quantities of disinfectant and masks and other sorts of things. Uh, but but factories are, are, are basically back at work. Offices um, have been open in, in Beijing for some time as well. Um, but again, there's restrictions. So there's only certain numbers of people that can be in based on the floor space there um, and, and based on sort of the, 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 the distance that people are meant to keep from each other. How are people responding to this? Because we're seeing a lot of restlessness, right, in North America in particular from people. Uh, did they just jump right back into it, go start doing everything they used to do before? Well, you can't. I mean, you know, the, the, the limit technically is meant to be three people, for example, to a table in a restaurant. So you can't do big events. You can't do big events of any sort, but you can't even do, do dinner with friends. Um, and uh, so it is it's kind of it's kind of a boring kind of normal, you know, uh, where you can go to work in general. You can do your business in general. Today in Beijing, schools reopened for the first time only to 12th grade because that's the grade at which people have to write college placement uh, tests, a university placement tests. So, uh, you know, there are elements of sort of productive life in terms of your ability to work, your ability to buy food and eat and that sort of thing that are there. Um, and slowly some of the uh, kind of tourist attractions and that sort of thing are, are opening back up. But it's, it's, it's life with restrictions. And if you talk to people here, they'll say, you know, that there's, there's no chance of this disappearing anytime soon. And, and I think they would caution people in other countries as well against expecting that uh, – coming out of lockdown means returning to normal because that the, the path there seems to be sort of a long and slow one. So that's, you know, is it d- different depending on what area you are in? Like what about the area of Wuhan where this all kind of started? Yeah, it is. It is different. And, and this is actually one of the things they've done that's been kind of interesting, which is, is they've, they've put in place a kind of a regime that allows them to act very quickly. So if there are um, a sudden a number of new out- cases in, in a certain area, they'll lock that area down. Uh, Wuhan has been different. I mean, Wuhan, as you just said, uh, Hubei just said that they don't have any anyone still uh, any confirmed or suspected cases that are that are uh, on, under underway right now. Um, and but the lockdown is gone, but the restrictions there are much more heavy. I mean, people who have been cleared can go to work in Wuhan. Um, you need a special pass that allows you to go to work. Hmm. Uh, otherwise, uh, people are only allowed out for two hours at a time, and, and that's quite strictly monitored. That's very different. Uh, Nathan, thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Nathan Vanderclip, Globe and Mail, Beijing correspondent. Of course, you can read his work in the Globe and Mail newspaper talking about the differences in different areas of China. So depending on where you live and where you are, how relaxed the measures have been versus how strict they continue to be. Wuhan, very different, it sounds like, from Beijing. And is that something the rest of the world can point to and say, this is going to be the new normal? We will wait and see. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau speaks at 8.15 this morning. And as always, we will have that live for you. It is an important day for businesses out there as that wage subsidy program kicks off. Uh, and as well, there's, you know, all sorts of questions about when provinces are going to be reopening and more. So let's talk about what we can expect to hear out of Ottawa today. Joining us now, Mike LeCouture, our Global National Parliamentary Correspondent. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. How are you doing? Good, thank you. So what do we expect to hear from the Prime Minister this morning? Yeah, it's expected he will be talking about that Canada emergency wage subsidy. Uh, it feels like we've been talking about it for some weeks now, but it only gets rolling today. Uh, that's when the application process is open already. Uh, unlike the CERB, that the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, it's not first come, first served. Applications will be taken between April 27th and May the 3rd, and it'll be batch processed all at once 
on May the 4th. Uh, don't forget, this is that wage subsidy. So 75% of employee wages will be paid by the government up to $847 per week per employee. 12 weeks in total. It'll be retroactive to March 15th and go all the way until June the 6th. Now, already we're seeing some criticism by the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses saying a survey that they've done among their members say that it comes a little too late, too late for some businesses to hire back laid off staff. Uh, and there's still some uh, unanswered questions like make sure, you know, will everybody be able to qualify? How soon will the money actually get out the door? Um, and, you know, that is continually a, a question. And some, as I said, you know, look at this and go, look, we've been shut down since May the 5th, uh, sorry, March the 15th. Mm-hmm. Uh, and being able to keep those people on payroll until now has been difficult, especially if they're a small or medium sized business. So will this actually help the number of businesses that the government uh, was targeting? It's unclear. Right. Okay. And we'll see what the application process is right, like, right? Because we know CERB was smooth. Uh, this, we'll see how it goes starting today. People, people can start applying. It's supposed to go relatively smoothly because last Monday the Prime Minister announced that there would be this calculator available online for businesses to be able to input all of the values in there and sort of do their own calculations ahead of time and then make the process, according to government officials, a lot smoother. Um, they had uh, estimated last week when they had a background briefing that if you use the calculator program ahead of time that the process today would only take five minutes. Regardless, whether or not it takes five minutes to fill it out or not, you're still not going to see any of that money until next week. Okay, so that's one thing. Uh, the other thing I guess we'll hear more about uh, are the mixed messages that we're hearing from some of the provinces on the, the potential reopening of them. Yeah, and the Prime Minister had already noted that there's different provinces at different postures and they will go at their speed and their level at the same time making sure that everybody is sort of anchored in the health uh, recommendations of key health officials. Uh, and we're learning that today... Doug Ford in Ontario, the premier there, will be announcing the rollout of, you know, what their phases will look like, just like Saskatchewan did last week. Um, and we got a bit of an indication of where that will go because the education minister yesterday noted that instead of um, having the school year start on May the 4th, they're kicking it back to May the 31st. So will we see uh, everything sort of cascade after that? Or is that just a, a provisional date that they'll look at? But the reason that... Uh, uh, the, you know, we're being we're talking about this sort of cautious kicking off and not flicking a switch is because uh, you've heard different premiers like Francois Legault in Quebec talking about herd immunity, and that's the reason yeah. behind which they think that they can get this going. Uh, Dr. Theresa Tam, the chief medical officer of Canada, has basically said, look, you need to be extremely cautious about this concept because uh, the idea of generating natural immunity is something that's not that should not be undertaken at this point. To that end, the WHO released a brief on Friday saying there's currently no evidence that people who have recovered from COVID-19 have the antibodies that will be protected from second infection. They revised that statement on Saturday saying that it may provide some level of protection, but also keep in mind that this is such a new virus that health officials aren't 100% sure if there will be a second wave if or if you'll be protected from a second wave because you've developed those natural antibodies right. or, or not. So that's why... Uh, I think health officials are trying to help government officials understand that the go-slow method is the best one to to employ here. I also find it interesting that Ontario is announcing their plan today when their numbers still remain pretty high. Yeah, and I think that sort of speaks to where politicians feel like they need to provide some 
level of glimmer of hope to people. I mean, the weather's getting nicer here in Ontario um, and, you know, it, and across the eastern Canada as well. So people want to get outside. And I think if you give people that sort of blueprint or that roadmap saying this is how we'll go, this is the level of, of, right. uh, of reopening, that people will maintain all of the health restrictions and not say, well, forget this. I'm just going to go for a walk. I'm going to go and congregate with friends or have a, a barbecue. Mm-hmm. But if you give them at least a bit of a roadmap and saying, this is where we think we can go, then maybe residents will say, okay, I'm still with you here and I'll still follow the guidelines. And Mike, it also sounds very much like we all need to eat more potatoes. Yeah, because you have the uh, potato industry of Canada saying that, look, uh, we have too many potatoes at this point. There was less demand because restaurants have moved to uh, either a lot of them have closed down or you have just takeout and delivery. So the, the Canadian Potato Council, which represents about a 1,000 potato growers across the country, sent a letter on Thursday to Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude saying urgent interventions are, are necessary because they just have too many potatoes. And it contrasts that with some other industries such as um, you know different meat industries where they've had COVID. COVID-19 ravaged some of their meat processing plants, and they're looking at possible shortages there. Marie-Claude Bibot, the agriculture minister, has said, look, our, our food supply chain won't be affected, although we do know that there could be some shortages or increased prices in meat, and now potatoes uh, could be an issue as well. So that's something that the government has to consider and, and look at as they go forward. So the big concern is this surplus of potatoes that farmers are sitting on right now? Yeah, and you know these are potatoes that would have been French fries in different restaurants. So course, um, yeah. I, I'm not trying to you know get all the all your listeners have a hankering for French fries at this early morning hour, but uh, this is the issue <laughs> that potatoes are, are sorry that farmers are dealing with. So they're sitting on this glut of it, much like milk producers have been seen in in different countries. You know, pouring out milk uh, because of a lack of uh, a lack of demand on it. Um, you know, this is an issue with with potato growers. So they want some sort of intervention by the government. I'm all for the breakfast poutine. Like, show it to me, have it to me, I will definitely eat the breakfast poutine. Um, I'm good with it too, <laughs> as long as it's it's proper gravy. I grew up in Quebec, so don't give me you. any of this kind of other stuff. No, I'm with you on that, Mike. We are in perfect agreement. Listen, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That's Mike Lecouture, our Global National Parliamentary Correspondent. Yes, yeah, surplus of potatoes now, as if farmers don't have enough to deal with. Now they're worried about what to do with this product that, as Mike pointed out, would have been French fries in restaurants and fast food establishments and you name it. Uh, so now that's something else the federal government will be taking a look at this week. This is Mornings with Simi. Great song there by Brian Adams. I hope you had a chance to watch some of that Stronger Together yesterday. It was a great show. Also gives you just an idea of how many so incredibly talented Canadian artists are out there making it big. Let's see if Nikki Reitmeyer checked it out. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. I did not watch it. Oh. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I will say... Not I even highlights re- on, like, you know, checking it out online? Because it must have been all over your social media. Right at the very end, I missed the Prime Minister's address, but I caught Drake, who yeah, for some that's... reason came after the Prime Minister to, I wondered wrap, that to wrap too. up the show. I was like, should it end with the Prime Minister? And then I'm like, oh, it's the Prime Minister. And then there's Drake. No, the true hero of our nation, Drake, <laughs> wrapped up the show. Uh, 
he went way over time. I was waiting for American Ninja Warrior to start, and I'm going, of what's Drake doing Priorities. on my TV? Talk- yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, come on, let's be honest here. And Drake's rambling on about this and that. I thought, what's going on? Oh, right, it's the, it's the big concert that was on TV today. So I caught just the tail end of it. I caught just the, the real king of our nation, apparently, Drake, who came after the <laughs> Prime Minister. I thought that was funny, too. Show. I don't think you're the only, we're not the only ones who noticed that, for sure. Uh, well, you know what? It was a great show, but let's talk about something that I have been getting a lot of emails on in the last few weeks, and this has to do with all the litter out there. Yeah, I've been noticing this too. You know, just the other night I was I was walking the dogs and again I saw another surgical mask on the ground and I thought, what is going on here with people? I mean, Simi, I'm assuming you're like me. Litter makes me oh, bonkers at yes. the best of times. Yes. Oh, crazy. Do you remember that scene in the Ron and Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy? When you're, you probably don't, but anyway, I remember this vividly because I saw this yeah. movie in the movie theater, and it's when Vince Vaughn and everybody they had that like, they ran into each other in the park, and then as they're walking away from each other in the park, they're all eating fast food and they just like throw it down on the ground. Yep. And in yep. the movie theater, I distinctly remember people gasped. Because it was so <laughs> horrific. This would have been, I don't know, 2004, I think, 2005, right around there. And people gasped because, oh my gosh, they had just littered. But I feel like in the years since then, people have started to litter more and more. I'm always surprised by it. Oh, man, Cindy. You know, I was thinking about this whole littering thing. And I remember I was probably ah, 20 or 21. And, you know, my boyfriend at the time and I, we were on a road trip and we were with a bunch of his friends. And I didn't know them particularly well. This was kind of the first time I was starting to meet to meet some of his friends. And we're on this road trip and we stop off at a fast food restaurant and we order some food and we eat it in the car and we're going to carry on with the road trip. And I, I remember they rolled down their windows <gasps> and they threw out everything no. into the parking lot. I lost it. I mean, I, look. I I'm, hope you broke up with them too. Like at that point, what's the point <laughs> well, of continuing yeah, that relationship? I mean, yeah. Eventually, it didn't last. <laughs> there was other problems, but I, I, I lost it. I said, "What is wrong with you people?" I said, "Well, like, were you raised in a barn? Like, the the world is not your dumpster. I, I you can't even comprehend this wow. small inconvenience it is for you to just get out of the vehicle yeah. and go walk twenty feet to the trash can over there." But I said, "Look, the parking lot in the world is not your dumpster, and you have to be some kind of." disrespectful to think that other people should come and pick up your trash because you're too lazy to get off your butt and go throw it out properly. I mean, it just makes me crazy. It does. And you're right. And I've been walking home. I've been trying to do this once or twice a week, you know, in the last couple of weeks. And I've noticed this whenever I'm walking home, particularly for some reason, walking over the Granville Street Bridge, I've noticed so many uh, gloves, you know, personal protective equipment, just gloves thrown down on the ground there. And I think this is people who, you know, they're wearing their gloves in the car, maybe they're going grocery shopping, same with the mask. They stop the vehicle wherever they're going, they get out or they're driving over the bridge and they think, oh, here's a good place to get rid of this stuff. They just take it off, they just throw it out. I mean, it's absolutely crazy to think that, you know, they don't want to, I don't know, touch it long enough to to carry it to a garbage can. So they think instead, well, the world can be my garbage can and they just throw it out. It's absolutely insane. I mean, if you want to wear gloves, which we see isn't recommended because it just kind of spreads the germs. It's better just to keep washing your hands over and over. But if you're going to wear these gloves or you're going to wear a disposable mask, then why not have a a bag in your car? Like so many people have an old Safeway bag in the car and that's your litter. And then every time you take off the mask or gloves, you just put it in the bag right away. It also defeats the purpose. It defeats the purpose of having the gloves that you're wearing to protect yourself where let's say you were 
uh, infected with COVID-19 and it's on that glove and now you're just going to throw it out there like to be to infect somebody else? You know, yes, to come go, across it. That's spread it around your yeah, neighborhood. Yeah. So you're wearing gloves to protect yourself, but then you're just going to throw it down on the ground. So now it's a problem for someone else, which totally boggles the mind. But that's the whole thing behind the littering anyways, is no longer my problem. Now it can be someone else's problem because I'm too ignorant and too lazy to deal with my garbage properly. So this can be someone else's issue. I mean, it just, it makes me a little bit bonkers. You know, to that point, it actually is kind of interesting. I was reading something that uh, a doctor for the medical health officer, a medical health officer in Alberta wrote uh, to the Canadian press. And he said that looking at some of that discarded material, some of that waste, you know, does it still carry the virus? And he said, they don't really know, of course, because yeah. a lot of this is still new. But he said, for anyone who is worried about coming in contact with that in their neighborhood, uh, harsh environments, sunlight, cold weather, wet weather, anything like that will probably break down the virus relatively quickly and make it non-viable. So some a bit of relief if you do find yourself accidentally coming into contact with some of that medical supplies in your neighborhood but just pick because up some garbage. ignorant person threw it on the ground. Pick up your garbage! Right? Oh, it makes me crazy. And it's no surprise to me that you've been getting emails about this. Oh, I have. People drives people insane, especially at grocery store parking lots. They keep seeing it. Thanks for that, Nikki. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, the race to find something, anything which helps in the fight against COVID-19 is a race that everyone in the medical and research community is involved in all over the world, essentially. Companies big, companies small, they are all involved and no stone is being left unturned. And one local company is right in the mix for this as well. And they believe that they are making progress. So we wanted to learn more about that progress. Joining us now is Dr. Gilly Regev, who is with Sanitize, the CEO of that company. Uh, Dr. Regev, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Simi. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, tell me a bit about your company. What what are they usually involved in? So Sanitize uh, has developed and patented a way to deliver nitric oxide to treat uh, upper respiratory dermal infections. Um, this, we're using a natural molecule called nitric oxide that we all have in our body and has a pretty incredible abilities to eradicate bacteria, viruses, fungi. We have recently that uh, we're in the middle of a phase two clinical trial for chronic sinusitis when the whole COVID started and we had to pause. Okay, but then did you decide to pivot at that point? Yes. So we have, we, at that point, we stopped, we said, one second, we have on our platform technology uh, treatment, that's potential treatment for flu prevention that we've always thought about, we have developed, we've tested in the lab to see that it eradicates all the influenza viruses, but we never had the time to push it forward. And when the COVID disease started, we looked, we stopped and we said, okay, this is, this is the time to really push it forward. We tested it in a lab in, in Utah against the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes the disease, saw that it is very, very effective and decided to move it forward. Right. And now Health Canada, I understand, has also given you the approval for phase two trials in Canada. What does that mean? So phase two trials mean that these are safety and efficacy trials. So we're looking at the efficacy of this drug to actually treat and help people. Our trial has two arms. It has a prevention and a treatment arm. So we're looking at preventing the disease of people that haven't got it yet and treating early treatment of the disease of people that have already been infected. 
the the phase two is usually post a phase one that shows enough safety to move into larger human trial style study. Right. Now, Dr. McGabe, give me an idea of how, I mean, this all seems to be moving so fast, right? Is this normally how things work in the research community? Or would you say this COVID-19 situation makes everything move faster? It does. It makes everything move faster from the regulatory authorities, which I have to say we're very quick in reviewing all the material. You have to understand these are hundreds of, of pages that they have to read and review and approve. And they've done this um, in two weeks versus at least a month usually that that takes. So, and, and the same, same thing for us. We have basically worked around the clock to just make sure we write it quickly, we submit it quickly, we consult with everyone that's in the field that can help us in designing the trial and moving it forward. We're, we've produced the drug in, in less than a week in a local um, lab here in, in a GMP facility in Vancouver. So everything is moving very, very fast. Okay, and so what are phase two trials? What happens during that process? So during that process, we have, in, in this specific trial, we have 210 patients that we have a control arm and we have a treatment arm, and you look at whether the people who receive the treatment are doing better than the control, meaning they do not get infected versus the control. Right. We have to get to outbreak centers where the disease, uh, with their people at high risk. Right. So what have you gotten permission to do then? Where will you be doing this trial? So the approval is to do a multi-center in Canada. We're looking at a few different facilities. We're currently uh, looking at outbreak centers around here, looking to get into um, places such as the 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 mission prison or care home facilities. We're discussing a few care home facilities in Ontario as well. How, wherever there's a good outbreak. How competitive is it right now, Dr. Regavin, in the medical and research community? There are lots of studies out there, and it's not easy. There are the challenges of just getting the swabs. You need the swabs to test the people. Those are hard to get these days. You need to get the blood test. You need all the PPE to protect the people that are doing the trial. It is very competitive, and getting into hospitals is a little bit more challenging Vancouver may be in a better place than others, but um, th- this is challenging. We're not the only company that's, that's trying to get a, a trial out there. And why do you think that this use of nitric oxide uh, could be so beneficial? Is this like a new use for nitric oxide? So nitric oxide has been known for the past 20 years to, to have this antimicrobial activity. So it, really, it, it can eradicate bacteria, viruses, fungi. But what we have done is we found a way to deliver this instead of the large gas cylinders, which they're delivering in the hospital, we're delivering it in a liquid. So you can use a simple nasal spray and just spray your nose and kill the virus. And that is it. Are there any side effects to that or is it easy to adjust? It is very easy to adjust. It is the, the whole our patents are on the formulation of how we deliver it in a liquid. It doesn't have any toxic compound in it, and uh, we haven't seen any side effects. Okay, so this is, sounds quite promising then. So how, how much longer does phase two take then? How, what do you anticipate for the timeline? We're hoping that we can complete this trial within two to three months. And that's depending on the outbreak center and where we get and assuming we get all the testing material that we need. Okay. What happens after that then? 
When we complete the trial and hopefully with strong results uh, showing efficacy of the drug, then we go back to Health Canada. Usually at that point, you're applying for a phase three. We are hoping to get a fast track and be able to do what's called phase four, which we can get the drug to the general population, starting with uh, healthcare employees and get them to be able to use it and start to go back to life. All right. Well, best of luck. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today to talk about that. That is Dr. Jillian Regev, who is the CEO of a company called Sanitize. Uh, They are a local biotech company, and they're hoping that this treatment that they had been working on, called the use of nitric oxide, because they're looking at the antro and antimicrobial properties that nitric oxide has. They're hoping that this will be successful against COVID-19, so much so that Health Canada has already approved them for phase two trials. I think what this gives us an idea of, though, is, as I was speaking about with Dr. Regev there, is how competitive the landscape is out there right now. Every company is raising. If they think they have something uh, to contribute to this fight against COVID-19, they are jumping in right in and uh, hoping, of course, as everyone is, for some kind of Canadian made help with all of this. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, the first few weeks of COVID-19 hitting us in March were a huge transition. Everything was changing. It felt like hour by hour. One of the things the city of Vancouver did at that time was to suspend parking enforcement. Well, is it time now to change that? Vancouver City Councilor Sarah Kirby-Young thinks so. She joins us now to talk more about it. Good morning. Good morning, Jimmy. Why do you think it's time to change this and is it like time to get back to normal? I think it's time to uh, to re-implement parking enforcement because um, when the city presented the financial scenarios to show how dire our financial situation is, and staff showed us three um, options, and 50% of the revenue that we're expected to lose comes from parking. And when you look now, if you go out and about, I went the other day to pick up a UPS package and went to the bakery, and the streets are full. Um, and those that wasn't even in areas near hospitals. So. Um, clearly, it was intended to be for frontline workers, but the reality is that people are just parking for free. The city is losing money, and on the one hand, um, we have the mayor asking for a bailout, and on the other hand, we're foregoing revenue that we don't need to. You know, it's certainly true the streets are full. I mean, you re- I can really notice it in downtown Vancouver, whereas in the beginning, the streets were empty, and now you can't find parking in downtown. You can't, and I hear this, uh, I'm hearing this from a number of people, and uh, you wonder where people are going, uh, since we're supposed to stay home, and, and that's still really important physically distance, but um, people are going out for essentials like groceries or for necessary exercise, hopefully to walk in their you know, neighborhood parks, but um, but yeah, we need, we need to make sure that revenue is coming in, um, and we're minimizing the revenue gap that we see from the city, and we have the ability to do that, that's something we have control over. Okay, and you've kind of gradually reintroduced some parking enforcement though, is that right? They have been introducing it. Uh, this is an operational decision made by staff. Um, and I, my argument is that decisions like these, and I think it was really well motivated at the time. It was done on March 30th. It was right you know, after the state of emergency, and, and it was intended to support frontline workers. The reality is that you know, people see that there's no parking, and, um, and they just go for it. Um, but I think that uh, we've taken those measures. I think it's really important, though, that um, we don't bring it back gradually. We just bring it back fully. And, the, and so far, we've just started reintroducing enforcement at key beach right. areas like Kitsilano and others. So how do we do this then? Um, I think we just say that this is what we're doing. Um, you know, we make a, an announcement. We did a news release that said uh, we're, we're suspending parking enforcement, and we need to do one now that says we are, you know, re-implementing parking enforcement. 
So do you have to bring that back before council? Does everybody have to agree? No, as I mentioned earlier, it's an operational decision, so it's a little odd. It was it was made by staff, and it didn't come forward to council, and yet council has the responsibility to um, you know manage the budget and make some tough choices moving forward to close that revenue gap. So um, there's a disconnect there for me, and that's why I'm speaking out and saying, look, it's time to it's time to bring parking back. Yeah, that does seem kind of weird, though, that council wouldn't decide this. So how are you going to get staff to change their mind then? Well, I think we're having this conversation, and, and I'm getting hearing a lot of positive public feedback. Um, you know, I sent out a note last night on Twitter and, and got a lot of comments and got some emails in right away. Um, and I'm hearing that general buzz is that people don't expect to park for free. Um, they just don't. Um, and they think they do expect the city to manage its risk finances responsibly. Um, and that's the, that's the message that I'm getting and that I'm hearing. Okay, so you're going to be talking to staff about this? Absolutely. And you've also said that you think it's time to reopen civic golf courses. How do you make that work? How does that happen? Well, golf courses are probably the easiest place to physically distance. Um, you don't, uh, you keep some of these uh, facilities like the concessions and, and the pro shop closed. Um, you just lose the tees and the greens. Um, people have, there's acres of space out there on the golf courses, the three civic ones we have in Vancouver. Very easy for people to walk six feet apart, only have one person in a, in a golf cart, for example, and someone else walking. Um, I think that golf courses can actually be safer than when we go out to get our groceries or if you're walking on a seawall in an busy park area. Okay, so how do you make that happen? I, I think that uh, that'll be a decision of the Vancouver Park Board, but uh, I think that as the weather is getting nicer and people do need their exercise, we heard Dr. Bonnie Henry say that um, people do need to get outside. Again, um, while that's a park board decision, the park board budget is approved by city council and the golf course revenue does contribute positively um, to the cash flow of the park board and enables it to deliver some of those other recreational services that don't make money, but they're provided because they're civic benefits. Um, and so that's my argument. It's revenue we don't need to forego, and it's something that can be done safely. Right. And I know that there'll be more you know, virtual meetings and things coming up this week. What is on the agenda for Vancouver City Council? Uh, we are meeting tomorrow on Tuesday, and we'll be looking at a decision that was deferred, which was to talk about changing the property tax due date uh, from July 2nd to the end of September to give people a longer runway and a little bit more time to pay their taxes. So that will be up tomorrow. All right. I'm sure we'll be talking more about that. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, for weeks now, I have been getting emails and hearing concerns from people out there saying, listen, what are we doing for homeless people? In particular, what are we doing for the people who are camped out in Oppenheimer Park in light of this COVID-19 situation? It just seemed like a recipe for an outbreak in the making, right? That it just felt like we're waiting too long. We need to do something. Well, over the weekend, we finally heard what it is that has been in the planning to get things moving down there. So what we've heard is that the provincial government has uh, made some agreements with a number of hotels. This is in Victoria and Vancouver to deal with a couple of different kind of tent city situations that we have there. And so these agreements will allow for temporary supportive housing spaces for about 600 people in total. That is across the three locations. And they, of course, are concerned that many of these 600 people are also very vulnerable uh, to COVID-19. So the province unveiled this detailed plan over the weekend, and they're going to start moving people into these hotels. There's about 300 people who are still down at Oppenheimer Park. Uh, There's about 360 people, I guess, at the two different Victoria uh, encampments there. There's one on Pandora Avenue and there's one in Topaz Park. 
So what they've done in the last month or so is they've secured 686 hotel units and community center spaces. Uh, This is in Vancouver and then more than 300 hotel spaces as well in Victoria to get that done. So now they have until May the 9th to help the people who are in those encampments move into these temporary housing spaces. So that's a big deal. They're saying that they will provide uh, people with some support while they're in there. But of course, there's still lots of questions, right? What kinds of services will people get? What happens when this is all over? How do you help people transition to something uh, more solid? So for more on that, we're joined now by Shane Simpson, the Minister of Social Development and Poverty Reduction. Thank you for being with us. Good morning. So this plan seems like it was a long time in the making. What kinds of services will people get to help support this? Like, how is the transition going to happen? Well, and this plan, actually, it kind of, uh, there's been a lot of work going on since the uh, the crisis, the COVID crisis. But this plan came together in a, in a couple of weeks, uh, really, after the Premier brought people together. So we'll be doing individual assessments of people. That work's going on now. Um, we'll be able to deliver daily meals to people, uh, mental health and addiction services, primary health services, cleaning, laundry services, as well as 24-hour support uh, in these hotels and, and facilities as people move in. Now, how is the move going to happen? Because as we know, many of the people in Oppenheimer Park don't want to move into spaces. So how are you going to make that happen? Well, and we think uh, we've been in there talking to people. We think the vast, the vast majority of people do want to move uh, and that we're getting a lot of positive response. They started moving people out yesterday. Uh, and, uh, and, and we think that a large number of people are going to go very willingly. Um, but it is about one-on-one. We have health workers in there, uh, community integration specialists from my ministry, peers. Of, it's a very critical role working for the community groups. Uh, peer support in there, and we're doing the health evaluations, the assessments, and talking to people about their needs, their preferences, and and moving people to a, the different options that are available. Um, a few weeks down the road, as we've kind of moved people out, fifteen twenty a day, so that it's not uh, it's not upheaval. Mm-hmm. Um, we think at that point uh, we'll evaluate again, but we think that the large majority of people are going to go willingly and and see this as a better choice for them moving forward. And how long do we expect this to go on for? Like, what happens when this is over? Where do those people go? Well, um, we've, uh, we have uh, leased these facilities for a number of months. Uh, Our commitment is to look to transition to permanent housing, uh, permanent accommodations. Uh, We're looking at at those acquisitions now. Uh, There's the potential maybe for more modular, which has been quite successful. Uh, We're working with the city because we'll need to obviously expedite uh, the processes around that. That work is going on right now. And uh, over the next uh, few weeks, uh, we'll have more to say about the specifics of that as we work out some of the details. For right now, we're focusing most of the, the team and that on making this happen, what we're doing now as smoothly as possible to, to get people uh, moved and to get them moved in a way that's comfortable and safe and secure for them. Because we understand this is a very anxious time for people. And when you up, it, we're creating a, a real change in their lives and so we're going to do that in as careful and considerate and compassionate a way as we can so that we don't create more anxiety for people than they already have. All right, Minister Simpson, thank you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi.
843 on this Monday morning. Well, the portal has been open for a few hours and already, as we've heard, more than 10,000 businesses have applied for the emergency wage subsidy program from the federal government. This is something that the Canadian Federation of Independent Business has also been surveying its members about. And to find out more about that, we're joined now by CFIB Executive VP Laura Jones. Good morning, Laura. Good morning. Do you expect a, a large amount of intake for this program? We absolutely do. We actually surveyed um, our members, and we know that over half of them intend to apply for help. We've been getting piles of questions on this on our weekly webinar and through our helpline. Um, So, yes, many, many businesses intend to either use this to recall or retain employees. And have they been using the calculator? I know the government had set that up about a week ago to get people ready to go. Has that been useful to businesses, do you think? I think so because we, you know, we we did a a webinar with CRA on it on Friday, and we sent an email out to our members Thursday evening, and within you know within minutes practically it was fully subscribed. Um, So we're we're working on getting another couple of um, tutorials with CRA for business owners on it, but we know that's been very popular too, and a little bit complicated um, to. Figure, figure it out. Figure There are a lot of questions about this program. So I think, um, you know, the devil is always in the details with these program designs. It, it sounds easy, 75% wage subsidy. Uh, right. Top that up if you can. Uh, but if you can't, that's okay too. Uh, but there are lots of devils in those details, as you can imagine. So what does this tell us, do you think, about the state of the business community in Canada, Laura? They, they clearly are very invested in trying to make things work at all costs. They really are. Business owners are being are being so so creative about trying to make things work. Um, but the world is really upside down right now. I mean, it's incredible for me to see on our surveys just how many people um, n- n- not just want government help, but absolutely need government help in order to get their businesses um, through this. And you know that small businesses are the last ones to put their hands out um, for for this kind of help. I mean, typically on our surveys, what we see is um, we want government to keep taxes reasonable, to keep regulation reasonable, minimize red tape for us, stay out of our way, and we'll be fine. But that's not at all what we're seeing right, right now. We're seeing uh, businesses saying they need help with rent, they need help with wages, they're going to apply for these programs. These programs are going to make the difference in many cases between um, surviving and not surviving. So what do you think then of the government's response so far? Well, look, I think it's very challenging. I mean, how would you like to be a finance minister in Canada right now at the federal or provincial level? It's incredibly challenging, and they've been rolling out these pro- uh, programs in absolutely you know, record time for government. Having said that, it's never going to be fast enough um, for businesses. And for many, even with this wage subsidy, we have half that intend to apply, but many are saying that, you know, it's too late. And, um, you know, even with the applications now open, we're, we're still going to be looking at another few weeks before the money is flowing. And businesses are in a cash crisis right now, many of them, um, with respect to paying their bills. Um, you know, the rent program was also announced, a little bit more detail on that was announced on Friday. Mm-hmm. Again, um, it's good news, but, um, you know, it may be a bit complicated to administer and the way some of these programs are set up. And then, of course, you've got people falling through the cracks. And I don't say that as a criticism of government per se, but it's just one of the very, very challenging things about the situation we're in. And it kind of underscores the need 
for businesses to get back to being able to um, uh, support their business through sales, not subsidies, as as soon as is safe to do so, because this really isn't sustainable um, in the in the in the in the midterm. In the meantime, then, is there something more that you think the federal government could be doing? Well, I actually think there's more that the provincial governments could be doing to step up and, and shore up some of the cracks, you know, between these big federal programs. So for businesses that are otherwise healthy but are falling through these cracks and desperately need some help, I think that there's a role for provincial governments. And you saw, for example, Manitoba last week announced a program of a $6,000 um, payment for businesses that are not eligible for other federal programs. Things like that are quite helpful. Saskatchewan's got a $5,000 um, one-time payment. Nova Scotia has a one-time payment um, in place. We've been suggesting that provinces look at up to $5,000 a month um, while this is going on to help businesses that are really hard hit and are either falling through the cracks of the federal programs or, right. you know, are, are it's really, really not enough. So, for example, let's say you have a landlord that doesn't want to participate in this uh, new federal program and, you know, you're stuck. You've got this big bill. You've been shut down. Provincial government has mandated mm-hmm. you to close. You're a hairdresser or a nail salon, and your 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 landlord doesn't want to cooperate. Why not have the provincial government step in and help fill some of those cracks? All right. Well, Laura, thank you very much for that. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, you ready for a little good news today? Well, if there's something that hasn't gone away or hasn't changed during all this time, it is people's willingness to help out when they can. Case in point, the Vancouver Aquarium. We know they're struggling with expenses right now. They're still paying about a million dollars a month looking after all the animals that they have there. And they've been getting a helping hand perhaps from a surprising source, but from the Vancouver Whitecaps. Uh, We're going to learn more about this now and how successful this has been. So joining us now is Vancouver Whitecaps CEO Mark Panis for more on this. Good morning, Mark. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Tell me how how you teamed up with the aquarium. You know, it's uh, it's been a great partnership. The aquarium um, put out a call to action, uh, I guess, two Thursdays ago. Their CEO, uh, Lassa Gustafson, uh, explained to the public that, um, you know, they shut their doors. They did the right thing to slow the spread of uh, COVID-19. They shut their doors and to the public, um, but they can't stop with the care and feeding of the animals and the mechanical systems that are needed there to uh, do the water filtration, maintain temperatures, etc. It's It's just, it's labor and uh, cost intensive. And so, as you said, about a million dollars a month um, is, uh, is what they need to keep the lights on. They said they were in fa- financial distress. We reached out to them uh, on the afternoon, that afternoon, the Thursday, Friday morning, we had a meeting and an agreement uh, in principle in place to, to uh, help them out because, uh, you know, we're a civic institution and we have a number of, of tools at our disposal that can that can right. deliver help like this. So if we can, we must. So one of the ways in which you're doing that is you've been teaming up to produce these uh, face masks that people can wear, and you've been selling them online. How many have you sold? It's been incredible. We launched them on Friday morning at 10.30. So in the first three days, we've sold uh, 60,000 masks and raised $1.2 million. Wow. And listen, wasn't the initial run on this, you expected to sell like what, six or 7,000? We were were hoping the initial one was going to be 10,000. We were hoping to sell. So we're six times ahead of that, but that just speaks to the character of the city. 
No kidding. So you've sold 60,000 as of this morning. Are you going to keep this going? Absolutely. No. And, you know, so there's a, there's a few things to note. The first is that, um, you know, the masks are meant, they're not the M95 medical grade, like the medical respirators right. that our frontline health uh, healthcare workers need to stay safe. And it, it, what they are is they're like, they're a, they're a, a, a protective mask that we wear, all of us should be wearing when we go out uh, to make sure that, that if we happen to have contracted this infection, we're not spreading it without knowing. So this is about keeping your loved ones safe, the P, your fellow citizens safe, and so forth. And what we did is, rather than a cotton mask, you know, a sports team, you, um, you're around all kinds of uh, athletic performance gear all the time. So we were able to quickly swing into action and identify um, a mask that, um, uh, that's a polyester blend. Uh, the, the ear uh, loops, are, we've made them out of a, um, like a, a yoga pants fabric. So these masks, they have a seam. They're nice. Right down the middle. Yeah, they're really nice. And, but the thing is that you can wear them a long period of time. So if you're a shift worker or you're going to be out and engaging um, in the public uh, a lot, it. you can wear these. And, um, and we were able to put some unbelievably cool designs on them. Yep. Uh, the jellyfish ones are selling like crazy right now. <laughs> I, I love that one. So you can find them at vanaquashop.org. So is this just going to continue on then, Mark? You're just going to sell as many as yes. you possibly can? As many as we can until we get through this. And, and uh, because people, we all need these masks, right? And, um, and the, the aquarium needs to, needs to stay, stay open. Like this thing's going to pass. I mean, it's just ravaging, you know, uh, you know normal life as we've known it, but it's going to pass. But when it does, we just have to be, we can't as a, as a, as a city, we can't let cherished institutions um, just be so damaged yeah. that they can't recover. And that was a possibility here before, uh, before everyone stepped up. And if we just, if we just join together, if we team up, we can keep the aquarium open. The other thing that I think is really important is these are being produced in the lower mainland. Yes. I love and that. So, yeah, so these are textile worker jobs that we're saving, um, and well, we're keeping factories open. So. I'm going to order one today, and I'm so glad you guys are going to keep Love doing it. it. Thanks so much for telling us about it. Well, thanks, thanks for having me, and, and thanks so much for just every day I can tune in and, and listen. I, there are so many of us that do that. It provides a sense of normalcy. Uh, it's really important, so thank well, you. I hope so. I hope so. Thank you so much for your help, and hopefully we'll get an update from you in the next couple of weeks. Absolutely. Look forward to it.